Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a long, long, long time friend. And I think we really are friends now, Monique. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I hope so. <laughs> it's at least 10 years. It's got to be longer than that. Yeah. When did you start with Uniworld? 2007? Seven. Yeah, so it probably goes back to that. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, however many years, 14, 15 years. And uh, Monique is the chair and CEO of Uniworld Group. Uh, and we're going to talk about Uniworld. So I, I want to go back uh, to an indelible memory etched in my mind from an event we did at the last live edition of Advertising Week in the fall of 19, when we celebrated Uniworld's 50th anniversary. Yep the 20th anniversary of the Nelson Mandela Foundation together. And uh, I got a chance to meet your parents. So I'd love to talk about your parents who must have been enormous influences on you. Yes, um, Jonathan and Dorothy Nelson uh, are just my, my rocks. They're my everything. And, um, and they're my partners. Uh, in 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 Uniworld, so it is a it is a family business as well. But uh, yes, my dad is uh, by trade a uh, an electrical engineer. He went to Howard University, and um, his family are immigrants from Guyana, uh, which is uh, in the Caribbean, but somehow in South America. But we can talk about that uh, later. And uh, he his family immigrated, of course, to Brooklyn, where I was born and raised, and um, that's you know, his short story. And then my, my mom is a Texan. She is born and raised in Houston and uh, had a very different trajectory. She is a scientist. Uh, so, you know, lots of math and science in my house, as you can imagine. She went to the University of Albuquerque and um, my father was out there working uh, as, a, as an engineer and they met and they ended up moving back to Brooklyn after, um, after their short courtship and getting married. And uh, they've been here and been married now. Uh, they will celebrate 52 years, July 20th. Um, and they're just awesome. They're awesome people. And they believed in education. They believed in exposure. They believed in you know, all of the, the good and the bad that you needed to learn it all um, and that you never stopped learning. And it was, it's, it's part of the reason that I, I love the work that I do in advertising and marketing because it is a, it's a consistent evolution of, of learning. And that's kind of the baseline that, that I come from. And they supported you. I know you love to perform. You love to be on stage. You were a blue ribbon winner on horseback from what I understand. I was an equestrian. Yes. I went uh, to equestrian camp up in uh, Vermont and every summer I would ride and I just loved to ride. And um, yes, I was a blue ribbon dressage and stadium jumper, but, uh, and wanted to go to the Olympics, of course, but you know, we just didn't really have a whole, we didn't have horse money. So, uh, you know, keeping a horse in Brooklyn was a little pricey. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. That's a big money sport equestrian. Oh yeah. It was. So we rented, you know, I got to go to camp and, and ride for eight weeks. I dealt with all those people because when I was running the sports commission as a kid, when I was 23, so this was 1987, I was the first executive director of the New York City Sports Commission. And very early on, a group came to see me from the National Horse Show, 
Do you remember that? Yes. And that, it used to be a nine day event in Madison Square Garden. Yes. It was enormous. And the issue was over keeping them in New York, keeping at the garden. Eventually we did, but then it started to get smaller because I think it's too much money for people today to be in that sport. Unless you're like, you know, unless you're born into it, uh, that's tough to get into. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a big money sport for sure. And upkeep of a horse and the food and the trainers and the, it's, it's, yeah, it's a lot. Okay. Okay. Who knew we were going to have a big horse segment in our conversation today? I didn't see that coming, Monique. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you uh, end up at a great school in a great city. I love the state of Tennessee. I went to school in the South. Also, I went to school in Georgia. Uh, but I love Tennessee and I love Nashville and you end up at Vanderbilt. I did. I, um, you know, my, my senior year at LaGuardia high school, I got recruited by a organization called the Posse foundation. And, you know, my eyes were on, you know, Stanford or, you know, Wesleyan or Swarthmore. Like I was, you know, definitely like I'm going, you know, the very small liberal arts, you know, Northeast. Or I'm going really far, right? I'm going, I'm going out west. And uh, the scholarship, you know, came and it was very interesting. It was a really interesting process. And uh, I remember being in a room with a hundred kids and you know, a, a ballroom. I think it was the Marriott. And they just put us through all these exercises, right? And it was, you know, get together, do things with a group of kids and then break and do other things and have conversations and talk about, you know, current events. And they actually acted like they cared (laughs) about what we thought and whether, you know, here you are 16, 17 years old, and they're asking you about, you know, the state of, you know, race and culture and, you know, what does it mean to be a young person in today's world? And the next thing I knew, I guess I must've, you know, talked enough. Um, I got a phone call that said, you know, would you like to become a part of the Posse Foundation, which means you go to Vanderbilt on a leadership scholarship. And I was like, oh my gosh, what does that mean? And, you know, my father goes, I don't know why you're even considering anything else. Right. Um, you, you know, you've got to do this, right? So the awesome part about my Posse experience is the fact that I now know that being inculcated in team and diverse team at 16 and going through a training program around conflict resolution and, you know, how to, you know, work through a problem, how to get a solution, how to influence um, an organization at that age is invaluable now. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they teach you that, right? Like it's, it's 10 kids going to a school together right? Because if we're going to combat racism, sexism, and all the other isms, right, then we're going to have to, you know, talk about that. And that has to happen where the people are. And that was the students, right? And Vanderbilt had its own desires of becoming, you know, a Stanford or, you know, an Emory or a UVA, right? They wanted that status. And one of the things that came back in their research document was the fact that they were not very diverse, And that if they really wanted to be world-class, then they needed kids from everywhere, right? And every possible background, socioeconomic group, you know, the the representation needed to be on that campus for them to have the best university that people wanted to go to. And they took this, they made this bet in 1990, right? And you can see the, the fruits of that labor 
when you see that young lady being able to walk on an SEC football field, right? Last fall, there's just a level of pride that I have in Vanderbilt knowing when I got there, there was four Confederate flags in the, in the freshman quad to now putting a girl on the football field. I'm, I'm pretty damn proud that, you know, they, they got the message and they continue to know that this is the way to go. And this is, this is what positivity looks like. So Nashville is amazing. I love it too. It's a great food town. It's a great university town. Um, it's a progressive town on so many levels. The music scene is amazing still, um, but there's still lots of work to do, but I'm very, you know, I'm proud of that experience and I'm a proud, um, I'm a proud Commodore. Yeah, no, it's a great city. I love Hattie B's and, <laughs> and, and, and I love the Ryman Auditorium. Oh yeah, you know and the, listen, the. You can't even miss the Grand Ole Opry. I mean, it is still pretty awesome. Yeah, no. When when my son moved to California in 2018 after Advertising Week, we drove across across the country, oh, wow. and we did not go a conventional route. We actually spent two full days in Tennessee, which is not really on the way to California, <laughs> and not really even going west at all. It's going completely the wrong direction. Um, <laughs> But we spent a day in Nashville and we went, we saw there was a night at the Grand Ole Opry honoring Ray Charles. Oh, that's awesome. And we went to that, we went to the Ryman and then we went to Memphis and we went to Stax, which was amazing on Macklemore Street. And we went to Beale Street and we went to Graceland, which was so much cooler than I thought it would be. I got to tell, tell people all the time, I was like, don't, do not sleep on Graceland. You have to go and then go eat at the Shoney's across the street. Oh, I, I, I was, I mean, who had worse taste than Elvis? I know. Listen, it's a real, it's the story is, and to, to walk through there is to be like, wow, this is right. an incredible story. Yeah, no, I, 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 I very underrated. Absolutely. All right. We're, we're, we're in complete alignment on Graceland being underrated. So, so and I'm not even an Elvis fan, just for the record. Say I'm with you. Me, me neither. And I loved it. I'd love to go back. So, <laughs> Okay, so you graduate, you have a lot of opportunities, you, I guess, take some sort of test that you had, you had a proclivity towards sales and marketing. Is that a real thing, Monique, or is that, that made, is that made up? That is not made that up. It sounds made up. It's not made up, but I will tell you the, the preamble to that story. So I get my degree in human and organizational development, right, with an emphasis around change management and transformation, and a business minor, right? But I'm going to apply, I'm trying to get to Anderson, I'm trying to get to all these you know, consulting firms to kind of jump right into this OD space. And they're looking at me like, no, we're really looking for PhDs. I'm done, right? Like I've done my four years, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for a break. You know, mom and dad are like, and you get the roll off payroll, right? It's, it's time and I'm, and I'm ready, I'm ready to go work. And, um, and I just wasn't getting those jobs, right? Time's starting to tick. So I'm like, well, what else, <laughs> what else could I be, you know, good at, right? Like it's, if I've got to bide my time or think about whether or not I want to go back to school or not, what else could I do? So Vanderbilt actually in the career center had a kind of assessment, you know, that you would take and it would spit out, you know, based on how you've answered these questions, these are the careers that sound like they're good for you. And of course, and sales, which wasn't a surprise because I do enjoy, I enjoy a good, a good pitch um, and marketing, which I had, you know, taken some courses, but, you know, pretty rudimentary. 
So I said, okay, well, let me go and see who's offering sales and marketing jobs, right? And that's really how, how that how that happened. So no, it was a real test, <laughs> but it was definitely around, you know, I don't, I don't really want to fish around. Right. Let, let me see what, what I, what my comfort level is and where I could really add value. Yeah. I was the same as you. And I went to, uh, in Georgia, when I went to school to Emory, I was after four years, I was done. Every one of my friends was going to be a doctor, a lawyer. And I said, that's not for me. I'm done. Yeah. So <laughs> you end up, in Wisconsin at International Paper, is that right? That is it, yes. The, um, the Nicolay Paper Mill in uh, De Pere, Wisconsin, which is a suburb of Green Bay. Actually, no, I'm so sorry. The city is Kakana, Wisconsin. I lived in De Pere, Wisconsin, and Kakana is known for its cheese curds. Wow. It's like, oh, it's really bad for the waistline, but awesome. Um, wow. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I, I ended up there and no, we knew no one. There was nothing, no, nothing that we knew about it. All my mother said is we'll just pray on it. And we drove from Brooklyn to De Pere, Wisconsin, drove through Chicago. Um, and it's about three hours, three and a half hours north of, of Chicago. So let's talk for a minute. And I want to go back to Vanderbilt um, and then we'll jump to Wisconsin but you came from Brooklyn. New York City is home for you and I. My family's all from Brooklyn. Also, I grew up in Queens. And New York City is different than the rest of America. Correct. Brooklyn. And Brooklyn is different from the rest of New York City. Right. So you're part of a program that's all about trying to create change. Mm -hmm. But you're at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And you're going into a place in the Deep South. And I you know, share these memories. I was just a couple years ahead of you. You know, a lot has not changed in the South. Mm -hmm. You know, you talk about, um, Emory was a fraternity school where I went. So everybody's social life revolved around fraternity, Vanderbilt also. Mm -hmm. And my fraternity was mixed. So you had, you know, New York Jewish kids like me, but you also had, you know, real rednecks from Alabama and Mississippi and Northern Georgia and, and the Carolinas and Virginia, et cetera. Um, and they saw the world very differently. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Talk about that period. And I'm going to guess that there were some dicey moments in oh, Tennessee yes. when you were a young gal. Absolutely. No, listen, when I, 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 you know, touched on it briefly, but yeah, they walked onto the freshman quad and there was four Confederate flags in the window. And that was like our first trip to the chancellor's office, right? Like it was the first thing we had to say was, hey, flag on the play at hello, right? This, this can't be reality, right? Like if you want your flag, it should be in your room for you to admire, right? But not cool because that means something different, right? To those of us, and remember, we're, we're coming from the North. Right. Right. So even whether Southern Blacks may have, you know, felt differently. Right. There could have been a, a whole different lens um, because, yes, we're all we're not a monolith either. Right. Part of it is, you know, very regional. And, is, and you were so um, so apropos to talk about the fact that, you know, New York City is so far away from what the rest of the world actually. Right. <laughs> exists. No, it really, really is. We lived in such yeah. a bubble. Right. Like I didn't know you know, I knew Jewish holidays 
as if they were my own. I went right. to more bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs than I went to sweet 16s. So, you know, just that level of understanding and acknowledging difference through culture, religion, you know, hair type, whatever, right? That was just kind of common if you were ready to experience that in New York based on what you were exposed to, because there's still a lot of people in New York that lived, you know, kind of silo. There are lots of people that never, I knew, I remember dating a guy in high school who had never left Brooklyn. And I said, we are going to go to the movies in Manhattan. And he was like, why? And I said, because we should, you should go, we should go somewhere else and see this movie. And I remember him really going, okay, I, I guess so. But that was like a trip. Yeah. So there's so many, you know, that, that ability to say, you know, what's real and then ultimately getting into an environment that was extremely homogeneous in terms of thought process. At that time, Vanderbilt, used, they used to dress up for the football games, like full grown ball gowns and tuxedos. And I mean, can you imagine how unincluded people felt that either couldn't afford to have a tux or, you know, like just that pressure of what that culture was at the time uh, needed a lot of support and work. And yeah, we were put on that campus to, to shake it up and, and make sure that inclusion um, was at its core. I, you know, most of my, a lot of my posse mates started, you know, uh, clubs, right? Everything from the Hispanic club. I started um, a dance company, you know, called Rhythm and Roots, which is still in existence. I'm so happy about that. Um, my friend Keto uh, Huggins was the, you know, second Black SGA president. Um, our other um, classmates, Jackie Lopardo, was the first black homecoming queen at Vanderbilt. I mean, just trying everything we could to make sure that we could all participate in all of the things happening on campus. Um, that LGBTQ students, you know, had a space and a place to be. As you know, the South's not very hospitable to them either. Um, and I also, you know, the Jewish Community Center was like our place to go and hang out. Mm -hmm. um, and do service because that too was a space and a place where folks didn't necessarily feel like they had the support that they needed. So, you know, I, I, I always will thank Posse for that ability to bring a bit of New York's, you know, inclusion um, to everything that we did down there in Nashville. So let's crash together a bunch of subjects that we've talked about over the years and, and talk about the divided America in a different way, not in the 2016 going forward Trump, the wacky, crazy way we've been divided, but the ways we're really divided North South. Mm -hmm. The Southern culture, there are a lot like they love to play dress up. You're right about that. That's still true. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of people down there who still call the Civil War you know, the war of Northern aggression, you'll hear that. The statues issue and the number of bases, military bases like Fort Bragg that are named after Confederate generals today, you know, that the Pettus Bridge is still the Pettus Bridge. Not only was he, you know, a noted racist, but Pettus was also a senator and was also not only in the KKK, but was the Grand Dragon in the KKK. So there is a real divisive history here that 
is still with us today. Looking back on your time in Tennessee, what did you see then? And how big a variable is that even before we get to the Trump division in putting this country back together again? Mm, wow. What, a, what an amazing question. Super loaded. <laughs> but um, It is loaded. It's so loaded. Um, I... To, to break it down a little bit. So North versus South, very real. Um, I don't think people talk about regionality enough. Um, it's, it's very key um, to a level of insight. Um, when I got to Vanderbilt, I remember one of my professors was extremely deliberate in, their, in her speech and it, was, it drove me insane. I mean, I used to just finish her sentences and finally one day she just said, stop interrupting me, you should get more patient you should be able to hear me. And I mean, huge lesson, right? Huge lesson to be able to say, can I really hear you, right? Like she knew what she was doing to me, but it was a matter of everyone's not gonna talk at the speed that you want them to talk. Everyone's not gonna see everything the way you see it. And you must respect the fact that they see it that way. Doesn't mean you have to agree with it, but you must respect their point of view. And that's the hardest thing to do in this whole scenario. So my, my personal feeling is I just never remember anybody celebrating losers so much. But the flip side of this thing is, did they really lose? And I think at the end of the day, what we now know and the situation we're in now is that the essence of what's going on has not changed. It's just been dimensionalized and it feels better, but it's a lot of the same you know, reasons why. That's how they can celebrate the Confederate generals, right? That's how they can celebrate the fact that they fought to keep it. They didn't win, but they're, they're, they're saying, hey, we didn't go down without a fight. And we're still fighting for that. We still believe that this is, that we, we should be the only people that matter. And that's a shame, right? But I mean, ultimately, when you say nobody's lives matter, you basically are saying nobody else's lives matter but yours. And it's, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow, but there are just certain people, and I just have to believe that it's not as many as we think. I think it's a lot of people that just haven't been exposed. I think, you know, this is unfortunately a one-on-one -on -one sport. You and I know each other. We know each other well. There's no question about, you know, our relationship and that there's nothing wrong with that, uh, that we're allowed to do that, but we know each other. And I know whenever I meet a, a white person <laughs> and I get to know them, it's very hard to dislike them unless they're a jerk, right? And there's jerks in every possible form or fashion. No, there's no uniqueness to jerk them, right? And I don't like jerks and what he does. So, you know, once we get to know one another, it, it, it usually gets better over time. And we're, we're in that moment, right, where I'm, I'm, my, my optimism comes from if I can continue to educate and show and be and allow folks to really hear that point of view that maybe at a certain point, the stuff that we've got in front of us just shouldn't matter. It just shouldn't matter. The stuff that we are consumed with right now 
does not matter at the end of the day. Yeah. And we're not talking about so many of the things that, that do. do matter. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. So going back to the, you know, the very formative roots of Uniworld, it was all about, you know, Mr. Lewis's vision that everybody should be spoken to, that you want to talk to all your potential customers and that you have to talk to your customers in a language and in a way that's going to work with them. That's, that, that will resonate with their, you know, their culture. We're not all the same after all. <laughs> and here we are at a time now where I, I think a lot of the discomfort of a lot of the South, let's just, let's just, I hate to brand the South that way. So let's just call people that believe a certain way that is, you know, unique. Let's call it that. Mm -hmm that they're ultimately very afraid because America is going to be more than 50% non-white in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. You know, between the black population, and the Hispanic population right now in this country, it's around 32, 33%, yep. right? And then you add on top of that, the AAPI, you yep. know, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're getting close to sniffing 40%, you yep. know, today in right. New York City, the public schools, a million kids, 23, 23 American DMAs already there. So um, how much of that is fear driven by that group that they're not going to be the majority anymore? I mean, isn't, isn't that always the case, right? Like fear will have you do crazy things. When you are scared, you are probably at your least effective. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're not able to see anything clearly because the fear has got you so right. Like we all know that feeling when you are scared. Ah, right. That's exactly what's happening. Right. And it's it's something that I've been trying to kind of dismantle and say, but you shouldn't be. Right. Like most of this should be about, well, what does partnership look like? What yeah. does what does kind of making sure that we can continue the prosperity that we are so desiring of, why can't that happen together, right? And I think there's this whole thing around, do we grow the pie? Let's grow the pie, right? Like what you're doing is you're making it finite and that's what's making you scared. Stop, yeah. don't close the door when the it's on the other side, right? Like stop blocking your blessings, right? Someone would say, you know, in, in the church, don't block your blessings because you're scared. And really what you're scared of is BS anyway. Yeah, no, there's so many false narratives. And, you know, it, we were talking earlier about, you know, the gaps in mental health and, you know, people that are living on the streets that should not be on the streets. Correct. And, and one of the things that drives me crazy coming into the city every day is, you know, we all know how digital's changed, you know, business. Right. And there are a lot of businesses that can't stay in business, but, you know, empty stores is real bad for the fabric of a community. And, you know, what's the plan, you know, for cities and small towns alike, you've got to maintain some life there. Well, you know, and both businesses are small, right? Like yeah. nobody wants to think about the fact that, okay, if you want them to buy the big business stuff, well, they got to have money of their own to do so. We have to, the whole thing is strung together. Yeah. This is not 
you know, something that you can just say, okay, well, we're not going to do these people, right? Like that doesn't work. Yeah. So at the end of the day, you know, I'm working with this program now with uh, We All Rise Together and we partnered with TAP, you know, the Acceleration Project to really say, okay, let's go to black and brown businesses, you know, and really talk about how you could get resource to survive through this crazy moment and ultimately thrive because honestly, they are our brands of the future, right? Walmart was one store at one point, right? Like. Yeah. All of the, everybody started small if you started something. So it's, it's just that I'm hoping we can kind of continue to connect the dots to let people know that this is a good thing because to your point, the demographics aren't going to change. So what are you going to do? Just let a, a, the large, a larger part of your population just not contribute productively <laughs> to society. Right. right why would we do that? That's not even in our best interest. Even if you are at the top of the food chain, actually, if you're at the top of the food chain, that should be the only thing that's keeping you up at night. Well said. So let's keep building these bridges. And now let's go to your time in Wisconsin. You're in a huge corporation, international paper. Um, you're in a quasi rural area. That must've been as radical a leap coming from Brooklyn to Tennessee as it was from Nashville, you know, must've been equally impactful, I suppose. Equally impactful. What an amazing, uh, interesting experience. I was one of three black people in that particular mill and it was an actual paper mill. We did natural paper there. I was the sales rep for all the throwaway products. I was talking about that, the post-it, you know, I was the back of the post-it note, right? That brown paper that said post-it, post-it, post-it. I uh, did the ream wrap, which is the paper that went around the paper <laughs> that you put in the copy machine. Uh, it was just a host. Oh, the um, Reese's peanut butter cup paper, part that brown paper. <laughs> that was me. So pressure sensitive, um, very interesting business, manufacturing driven. And, um, and it was a great place for me to cut my teeth as a salesperson. Um, nothing sexy about it. Uh, I'm in Kalamazoo, Michigan, you know, I'm in, you know, Minneapolis, love the Mall of the Americas though. It's pretty awesome. Um, you know, just some places that, you know, people are like, well, why are you going there? Well, that's where the insulation company is, right? Like you gotta go, you gotta see Cynthiana, Kentucky, you know, just some really interesting rural, you know, places because paper mills and manufacturing just, you know, you don't want that in the city. It's not there. So again, gave me a totally different view of America yet again, right now I'm in the Midwest and they're different there too. <laughs> they're very different people, um, have a total different sense of what, you know, what America means to them and how they show up in the world. And they're very prideful too, you know, being from the Midwest. And, uh, and that's when I really learned about the, the black middle class and where that really came from. And, you know, Ford, you know, so serendipitous that I work for, you know, that Ford's one of our clients, but um, it's, you know, it, it's fascinating to think about that story and the $5 a day, right? Regardless of what you look like, um, which really gave that part of the country and the black folks that were in that part of the country, a, a level of affluence um, that has been there far longer than, um, than in many other places in, in, in the United States. So, you know, you, unique time and, um, 
you know, to be up there was also a lesson in, in, in the indigenous peoples. Um, a lot of Indians were still there on their land. And uh, that was a population in a community that I knew very little about. Um, and that was a, a unique time to get to know that population and that community and, uh, and a lot of the things that were very similar um, to, uh, to the black community at the time, even in the cities. So, you know, lots of challenges that they were seeing in that, in that environment as well. Um, but also it gave me a sense of, of community uh, when the football team left. So just so you know, there was this point in time in Green Bay in that area where it would be an influx of black people because it'd be in season. And then they would leave right after the season was over. So then we'd be back to the 40 black people that lived in the area. <laughs> oh my God, incredible stories. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it, it's one of the things that makes this country so great is just the way we've evolved. You know, I, I just had Martha Reeves on the podcast and she and her family were born in Alabama, but migrated to Detroit and she's still in Detroit today. And that, you know, that story of post-World War II migration, you know, people looking for jobs and, and that created what is really the backbone, you know, still today of Chicago, of Detroit, of all those great cities in the Midwest. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Great stories. Yeah. So uh, great stuff. So then you move on to work at Motorola. Mm -hmm. And and let's say that really the foundation of you as a CEO, that concrete starts to get poured as you become a sponge working as the EA for one of the big corporate VPs. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's where, where the CEO Monique is really born right there at that time. Yeah. Oh, Ron Garrix. He, uh, I was his EA for a little over nine months and um, I did everything with him. Um, I was in board meetings. I was developing decks. I was putting sales sheets together. I was running meetings. Um, it was one of those educational experiences that you could never have plotted, right? You couldn't have written down the curriculum if you tried. Um, he, was, he was a maniacal leader, no doubt about it. <laughs> I mean, he, he was into everything. Um, one of the super fast minds. Um, and I just, I loved every minute of it. It was fast paced, it was um, unconventional, it was irrational on many <laughs> levels, um, but I loved it. And you're right. It was definitely that moment that I was just like, okay, I could actually, I could actually do this. If I can keep up with this, then at a certain point, I can run something. Didn't know what it was. Still, that's always still my, my hitch. Right. <laughs> I get right. the feeling, but I'm always like, I don't know what it is though. Right. No, that's a, that's a fair hitch. So you have a great run at Motorola. You go up the ladder and uh, 2007 rolls along and you make a move that will redefine the business part of your life. Um, and you get connected with one of the classiest, you know, how else, what other words really come to mind to describe Byron Lewis? You know, smart, finger on the pulse, heart, mm -hmm. you know, brave. Courage. Uh, 
Yeah. Curious. But but so classy. Graceful. He was just he was just grace personified. Grace even better even better. Grace personified. So let's talk about your journey to Uniworld, which I don't think I've ever asked you how it actually all happened. <laughs> and and let's spend some time and talk about Mr. Byron Lewis. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I mean I joined Uniworld in 2007 as an account director and head of branded entertainment and integration. Um, and hence how we met you, because I said, we should do this, right? You had been calling and, um, you know, I dove head in, right? Like, I was just like, this is great. You know, I get to Uniworld and I'm going, oh my gosh, this, this is what I've been waiting for from a job, right? Like as much as I've loved this exploration and living, you know, and going all over the world and, you know, there was just something about coming home and feeling good. And to be brutally honest, not wearing my skin to work. It was, you know, very, very clear that this was a place that I would absolutely be able to unleash all the crazy mo <laughs> that was available um, and be completely appreciated for all of it. And, um, and that made my time there really special. And probably by 2010, I was over three departments, maybe four. And, um, you know, there was, you know, there was word on the street that, you know, he was, he was uh, looking to, to make a move. And, uh, you know, I remember having some conversations with, um, with the COO and she was like, well, I think you could do it. And I was like, what are you talking about? Just, you know, I just got here, right? It's like, I'm three years in. What do you, what do you mean? And she said, you know what, Mo, I really do. I think, I think this is something that you're good at. You, you, you love the business, you know, you're giving your heart and soul to it. Why, why not you? And I said, well, you know, if you're serious, if, if it's, if you really think so, let's, let's actually talk about this. And uh, we ended up having a, you know, kind of a formal sit down and, um, and he said, Hey, if you can get the money to buy my controlling stake, let's do it. And, uh, and that's, that, that was kind of it. I remember making two phone calls at that point. I went downstairs and in the, you know, in the lobby and made two phone calls. And I called my, my mom and dad and I said, Hey, what do you think about buying an advertising agency? And they go, sure. Which was like, Oh, okay. And then I called my boyfriend who was, you know, now my lovely husband and we were, you know, we were dating, but I definitely was like, this would be a life-changing kind of thing. And I asked him, I said, what do you think about buying, me buying an advertising agency? And, you know, he said, why not? And with that, I literally went back upstairs, <laughs> walked back into, you know, the room. And I just said, I'm in, um, let's do this. And I started on a journey from 2010 uh, we were able to get the um, all the paperwork and stuff signed off, probably December of 2011, and then we closed uh, May 1st of 2012. So, well, we're almost we're getting close to 10 years now. Yeah, I just celebrated nine May 1st. Wow. Yeah, next year 2022 will be my 10 year anniversary as chair and CEO. And talk about uh, a little bit more about Byron. So Byron is probably one of the most brilliant creative minds I've ever encountered. He was so clear about his vision. And one of the things that I always will admire 
the most about him is that he knew this was, he knew what he had. He named it Uniworld, right? Like the clarity over this last, you know, as you can imagine this last moment, right? The last 15, 16 months has just only crystallized just how brilliant his idea was because he always knew that it's like, no, it's gonna take everybody. Right, he didn't name it the Byron Lewis Agency. He didn't name it Lewis and Associates. He named it Uniworld in 1969. And there's just no questioning that um, that his his purpose and that the uncommon is where genius comes from is the answer. And uh, I believe in that deeply. And I I am promising to to hold on to that as long as I can until I can, you know, you know, pass it on to the next person to, to do the next leg of the race. Yeah. He was such a gent and he greeted me so warmly when we started advertising week and would always be generous with his time. Uh, we would have lunch from time to time and I would visit him most often in the office. And uh, he had a generosity of spirit that you don't see mm-hmm. very much anymore. Um and would tell me great stories, I think in part because he loved to tell them, in part because I was a new audience. But I remember he was so proud early on, just a couple years after he opened the doors, was involved with Shaft. Who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the chicks? You're damn right. Can you dig it? Mm-hmm. That's right. He well, you know, that's that's an amazing UWG Uniworld moment. Is Shaft was the first film that decided to lead with the song. Like he said, let's put the song out first and get people hooked on the music, right? He loved the arts. He loves the arts, right? So it's the music, it's the theater, it's the film, you know, but he got people hooked on that song. So then when the movie hit, it was already like, it was, it was already, it already exploded. So, you know, he knew what would move the community. He knew what would move that crowd. And when he heard, I'm sure when he heard, you know, he heard the song, it was like, oh, there it is. It's fantastic. I had Willie, a great drummer, Willie Too Big Hall, who's still in Memphis uh, on Great Minds. He was the drummer on Shaft on the music for Isaac Hayes. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, God. Unbelievable. Uh, Okay. So we're coming up on 10 years as CEO. It's a huge responsibility that you took on and still take on day to day. Talk about the parts of the job that for you have been most rewarding and the parts that have been the most troublesome and maybe some things that you didn't expect to be troublesome, but just, <laughs> you know, emerged over time. Well, I'll, I always like to, to end on the positive. So I'm going to, I'll start with some of the, the challenges and certainly some of the things that I was like, yuck. Um, one that um, every leader needs a coach. I probably ran myself ragged, not knowing what the hell I was doing early right. on. 
Right. Um, and I'm just so happy that, you know, someone kind of shook me and said, stop, <laughs> you know, every great athlete, every, you know, great anything has a coach and don't let it, don't let the, don't let them fool you. Right. Like they're not all doing this alone. Right. Cause there was definitely that very lonely moment of like, who can I talk to? Who do I go to with the problems that only a CEO has? Right. Like, what do I say to my board? What do I say to my people? Am I allowed to tell them things? You know, and then I had the nerve to get married and get pregnant and all this other stuff <laughs> um, in the midst of, you know, buying this company and, and, and taking over a legacy. So, you know, there's, there was just a lot of, of learning um, that, that happened. And then there, you know, some of the disappointments were around, you know, us getting paid less, you know, for oftentimes doing more, um, lack of value for what we were bringing to the table, um, you know, lack of support, depending on, you know, what you were doing or, or not doing. Right. Because, you know, on the other side, I, I, I just I'm a true believer in feedback and I think everybody's allowed to, you know, make a mistake every now and then. And, you know, let's just deal with it. Um, you know, just some of that unforgiving nature for uh, for communities of color that, you know, we, we never we never do that to our, you know, non-Hispanic white colleagues. Right. They, they get another shot. They get another day. Um, so it's just it's hard sometimes when we just we, we only are allowed the one strike. Right. And it's it was it was hard because it was that was a, that was something that's baked in the culture. Um, but the good part, you know, I will say is that we have, you know, clients that believed in what Uniworld was about, um, allowed us to and me in particular to grow into how am I going to change something that, you know, listen, Byron had been running this agency for 42 years before I took it over. That doesn't change overnight. <laughs> you know, there's, a, you know, there was things that needed to be done so that we could answer the, the solutions of today. And that's, you know, that that's some trial and error. Right. And um, and I'm really, you know, I'm honored and I'm I'm beyond proud of the team that I've built. Um, I love my people. I love my president. I mean, Greg Edwards is just like the best partner anyone could ever have. Um, I love the fact that we've been able to bring on a DEI practice um, and really kind of expand our sphere of influence to really help our clients, not only externally, but really to go in and help them, you know, internally, right? Because we know that if we can, you know, get your POV internally for your people, right, your talent and the things that are actually going to move you, um, that you'll be better on the other side. And I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just ultimately really, I'm pleased I am overjoyed that we are a majority minority owned agency that can do every can do what we want to do every day and be purpose driven and we were purpose driven before it was a thing. And uh, and I love that the people that come to work with us every day that that's what they care about too. They care about delivering to our clients with excellence, but they want their point of view um, heard and understood and they believe that that has power and value. And, uh, and that's what I'm, I'm most proud of. And that, that gets me up every day to, to fight for inclusion and equality on all forms, because, you know, you and I talk about this all the time. You know, we see more advertising than we see of anything else. So it is, it is our obligation 
to make sure that everyone can be seen. Yeah, I think that's why we like each other so much, because we've been talking about all these issues that are suddenly popular long before they were popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's all it's all uh, an incredible journey. So the the challenge of, you know, not only running a shop here and, and managing all the key client relationships, but you've also got a relationship with WPP mm-hmm. and there was a change in sheriff mm-hmm. at WPP the last couple of years. Talk about that. I'm a big fan of, of Mark Reed. I think he's doing a tremendous job there. And I think, you know, there was a lot of skepticism, I think about Mark. And I think he and his senior team, Lindsay, I know really well. And Laurent, he's got some terrific people. I think he's doing one hell of a job. Kudos all around. There was never a thing. There wasn't anything really, there was no real WPP. WPP was Martin, right? It was a founder's brand, right? Not unlike my journey, right? The founder, the brand in Syncopato, right? right? And once that leaves, now you have to reimagine what that looks like without that particular entity. And I think, you know, it's, again, it takes a long time <laughs> uh, to, to move something, especially something that ultimately did not really exist as a thing. Um, and that's, that's where I think he's doing, a, he's doing a masterful job, right? You're having to now develop a brand um, and he's doing that, um, you know, putting people around him that, you know, can look at, you know, different parts of, uh, of, of this new journey of, of being what is, what is creative transformation look like. Um, and I think it's good to have something out there that people kind of know and are now looking forward to. So, no, I think he's doing a great job. I mean, let's be clear again, it's, you're building something and building takes time and, and agencies are humans, right? Everybody talks about these widgets and stuff, but you know, they haven't taken over yet. The the bots haven't taken over yet. So you still have to nurture what, you know, what does that environment need to look like, feel like, smell like, so that people actually know what they're going in to get, right? What does that stand for? I thought it was really uh, interesting in like my brow went up when uh, Rob Riley went over for the job that he took as sort of, you know, as a global sort of creative czar. Does that help you in any way? Is that real for you? Or is that still fly at 30,000 feet and doesn't really filter down to the ground? No, I will absolutely give Mark Reed and his, you know, senior team um, elevating DEI on every level. They've been extremely supportive of, of making sure that they have representation there, that they are trying to infuse it in everything that they do. Um, and I just appreciate that, you know, that's where they're going with it, right? It's important because DEI has got to be something that everybody understands, right? And at every part in their business, right? This is, there's no part of the business that this won't affect, right? Everything from, you know, the, the tic-tac in the, the break room to, you know, the top of the house, everyone's going to have to think about how this changing demographic is going to change our business and our business models and ultimately what that'll mean long-term. So no, you're, you're, you're exactly right. Once in a while. So let's talk about uh, the challenges of the past year and change, running the business and 
still finding a way to deliver great, great work for clients. Yeah. Um, I have to say Uniworld was built for this moment. There was just no moment that I can imagine in, in my lifetime, right? I wasn't here for the 1969 one. Um, but this was just a moment where we've been training, we've been doing this work to answer this particular moment um, as we've been talking about as, as the trisis, right? It's just, there's never been a moment quite like this. And the sensitivity around where we are from a communication standpoint, um, I think we were just perfectly suited to answer the questions that people had. And I think answer the questions with solutions that were actionable um, and impactful, right? We really wanted to make sure that we were in bringing our clients to programs and hopefully solutions that were reciprocal that would start to make sure that they are delivering that level of empathy in everything that they do, right? Not just for Black History Month, but for always, right? And even for those that said, I'm just gonna do a Black, I'm gonna start with Black History Month. I've never even done that before. Well, thank you, right? Like, let's, let's start there. Let's start having a conversation with a new consumer in a way that will not have you introducing yourself again tomorrow right? You get to know the people that you care about. And if you really care about this consumer, then you'll get to know them and you'll get to know them in a way where you will participate in their lives in a meaningful way. So, you know, for everything that we're doing with Doritos, you know, on Solid Black, we're really proud of that work, you know, for doing, you know, or their Juneteenth spot, um, just, you know, really great solid work, you know, not only against Black, but against, you know, BIPOC, right? Just seeing a real surge um, around folks doing work across the board and really wanting to, to dial up that engagement in ways that I think will be meaningful moving forward, right? Because this, this isn't a today only, right? This is our, our foreseeable future, I guess, until we all go to space with, with, with Jeff and, uh, and uh, Branson, right? Right, right, exactly. So just to wrap, I'd love to get your real finger on the pulse answer to a, a, a difficult question, and, but an important question. The real measure of how committed the world is to change is, are they willing to put money against it? What are you seeing in terms of budgets uh, and you know, there's a whole argument around general market, multicultural market. Is it really one market that we should be talking to? You know, and I know there's been the challenge of getting from the small budget. How do I get the big budget money? Right. right? I want what's on the other Excel, not this one. Right. Right. What are you seeing in terms of budgets? Um, so that, that's twofold. Uh, one, we're just seeing many more opportunities for budgets. So that's a win, right? Volume wise, there are just many, 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 many more co companies out there saying, okay, I didn't think I needed this expertise, but now I know I do. Right. Okay. So there's new money out there. Let me just put it there. I feel like there's new money. Now, do I know if that came from a general market budget or 
it came from somewhere else in the organization. I'm not so sure. Okay. But I will tell you that the pie has grown in terms of just, oh, you're an interested client. That's great, right? Their first time at the rodeo, we're seeing a lot of that. So that we'll take a check and we'll say, good, let's keep it going, right? Because there's many, 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 many companies in this world <laughs> that need the type of work that we do and, and organizations like us do, right? And I don't think that's going to shrink, it's going to grow, right? So we want, we want to do that. Um, in terms of budget increases on you know, existing clients or folks, yes, to an extent, but I'll be honest, a lot of the clients that we've worked with have not been terrible to us by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so we would, you know, I would never say that there's always, you know, room for more and for us to do more. And I think as we get more access to doing more, um, I think we are getting those opportunities, right, to step up and have, you know, a global role, right? We've now probably done more global work in the last year. Um, so again, just opening that aperture a little bit and showing how even our competencies can translate, right? Like it's not just unique to the U.S., right? Culture is culture, right? And I know this from my Motorola days, right? And my international paper days. You know, I marketed all over the world. We still had to do the same work, right? You still had to go in and figure out right. who you're talking right. to, why, what are you going to tell them? What are you going to show them? Right. And then ultimately, what is the experience around purchase? Right. We're still the funnel is still real, maybe on its side now. Right. It may come out through e-commerce, but the wheels still round. And, you know, at this point, I would say, you know, the aperture opening is a win. Right. Okay. Just the fact that we have more people to talk to. That's great, because to be honest, we may have tapped out the pool that was already participating. Right. right. I think we did. Right. It was like, you can only get one of these. You can get one of these and you get one. You know what I mean? So, right. you know, you're, you're out of the game already. Right. Because there was only four or five to choose from. And it's one of these things where it's like, there's so many other brands out there. Why is this a war for, for one? Right. There's enough banks for everybody. There's enough, you know, tic tac companies for, you know, like we really, really, you know, I can't, I, I just, I'm stuttering now because it's just, it's still just a matter of there's just so much opportunity and that's, that's the win, right? It's just being able to get in the room and say, we happen to be black, right? But we actually could talk to more people if you, if you allowed us, right? Because our sensitivity may be more about what your, the majority of your particular consumer base is. And that should be the reason to bring an agency in. If your businesses are BIPOC led, why would you lead with a white agency when that's not in their DNA? If most of your population is, you know, are people of color, then you would probably want to have people of color to talk to that group of people. Why would you not? And it's so, you know, there's such an odd juxtaposition. One of my favorite recurring themes that we've been able to talk about, I've done over 100 episodes of this podcast now in a little over a year. And I've gotten to talk to a lot of people who were there and performing in the South in the 50s and 60s. You know, people like Martha Reeves. You know, I had Steve Cropper, who was the original guitarist and Booker T and the MGs and William Bell, who was, you know, the first singer before Otis Redding. 
you know, signed by Stacks. Um, and they would be traveling in the South. And I also am a real student of Sam Cooke. I read everything I can about Sam Cooke. And they would travel. They could, couldn't stay in, uh, there was only one hotel in every town where Black people could stay. They would often get there and be told there's no rooms when they knew that there were. And they'd make six people, you know, stay in one room. Then they would go on stage, audiences full of white people screaming in adoration, but couldn't eat in restaurants, had to stay in one room often, would be hassled by cops mercilessly on the road for no reason, stopped randomly, you know, oftentimes arrested for no reason, or just hassled. Mm -hmm. And yet it's Black people that define culture in America in music, in film, in fashion, you lead culture, white kids, who's going to all the rap shows? It's all white kids. Right. And there's so many, you know, odd juxtapositions here where you would think that a black led agency, you know, understands not only black culture, but culture in general for everybody. Black history is American history, right? Yeah, it's such a complicated subject, but really interesting. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, this is the this is the conundrum, right? And how do we allow people to make that decision as an and, right? Because just to go back and touch on your fear piece again, you know, the, the problem is, you know, a lot of times we get in a situation where it's you or me. And when we're in that situation, then self-preservation will take over. Right. And we need to take that out of the equation. The fact that there's an and factor here and we should be going for the win because as you know, we've, we've seen that the win loss is not going to do anything for us, but take us to war, like true yeah. war. And we, we, if, if, if the middle doesn't win out, cause I gotta believe most of us are in the middle. Right. Um, we just, we owe it to ourselves and our children. And I have a seven and a five-year-old to figure this out so that we are not going to blows. Um, it just, it, it doesn't make sense. And we, we can do better. We should do better. And we, we will. I, I have to believe that. Yeah, no, I, I sure hope you're right. I never want to see something like January 6th again, where it felt like, you know, it was like end of days in America. Yeah, it was, it was, that was a tragic moment. And we should all be very fearful around the fact that if unchecked, that's more the reality than the exception, right? If we don't really do something about this, we know what that could look like. And it doesn't just have to be there. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, Monique, we're gonna have to do this again. There's too much ground to cover and it's such a joy to talk to you always. So thanks so much for doing this. You are just such a heart. Thank you. You're my friend to the end. <laughs>